morning. Oh, what a savior. Wow. I feel like I'm a blubbering mess already. I haven't even gotten started. Thank you so much to our worship team, the vocalists, the instrumentalists, the audio-visual team, bringing us God's word through song. Um, yeah, y'all pray for me. I'm a wreck already. Um, we start with the obvious after a good morning, and that is, hi, my name is not Pastor Neil Grobler. And for those on YouTube, if you tuned in, listen, looking to listen to the pastor this morning, he'll be back with us, Lord willing, next week. My name is June Park. I serve as one of the elders here, and it is my pleasure and privilege to bring you the word this morning. And I hope the Groblers had a wonderful time taking much-needed time away and having a break. So today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, up to this point in 1 Corinthians, we've learned about some heavy topics. Have you not? We've heard topics on divisions in the church, church discipline, bringing lawsuits against one another in the church, sexual immorality, marriage, divorce, sex, and singleness. Whew, right? So finally, we get to chapter 8. And in your Bible, it probably says something like, hey, food offered to idols. We can all sit back and relax because we know today it's not going to be about us, right? Because we don't have issues with food offered to idols. So maybe, just maybe, we can just chill and listen about those folks in ancient Corinth. Well, you and I both know that is not the case. You and I both know that the Lord has much to teach us. So with that, let us pray. Well, sovereign God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to praise you, honor you. Lord, we thank you that we got to celebrate Independence Day earlier this week. That we live in a country where we can freely come to church and worship you and declare the name of Jesus. And Lord, with that, I think about our brothers and sisters around the world that may not be able to do that freely. So Lord, we pray that as your word spreads, as the gospel goes throughout the world, that you be with our brothers and sisters. And Lord, we know that your will will be accomplished. And we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the life of our brother Ken, who went to be with you earlier this week. We praise you that he called upon your name. We thank you that he's with you. I pray for Wanda and her daughters and the entire family and friends. The gift that Ken was to them and us. And Lord, just pray for them and lift them up. Lord, there's many needs in our church like all the other churches. We have pain, we have suffering, we have sin, and we also have wonderful people that are still chasing you, Father, trying to learn more about you. And Lord, so with all of that, we thank you that you are with us. We lift all of our concerns and requests to you. We know that you hear us. Lord, as we 
get into your word, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Show us, Father. Teach us. May I decrease and may you increase. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we get into our passage, chapter 8 this morning, let's do a quick review. This is not going to be a geography or history lesson, but we're going to do a very quick review on the ancient city of Corinth. We've already learned as we started this book that it's, number one, an ancient city. Yes, it's in Greece, and it was a large city. It was a port city, and there were a lot of people, about 500,000, but the size and population of Southern Maryland, a lot of people. It was an international city. It was a city of many different cultures. It's a city of business, commerce, entertainment. You can kind of think of it as New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles. That was the city of Corinth. Now, in terms of religion, we call Corinth a polytheistic society, right? It was a society of many different gods. It was ruled with the Roman culture, the Greek culture. We've all heard about Zeus and Diana and Aphrodite. Some of us have seen the movie Jason and the Argonauts. And so we know that there were idols, gods, statues, jewelry with their faces. It was everywhere. Idolatry was rampant in all of their society, which meant that idolatry and these false gods were part of their judicial system, part of their government, part of their entertainment, part of their social gatherings, not just in their homes, they had many social gatherings in temples. It was everywhere. And so it was very difficult for people to not be exposed to idolatry. Now we're going to get to food. Because of that, it was very difficult for people to avoid food that may have been offered at a temple. Typically, sacrificial food was divided up in three ways. One, they ate the food there at the temple. Two, sometimes priests took the food home and ate it, or they sold it at the market, their version of Amazon, right? And then it just went out to the city. And third, the people that brought the food to sacrifice for idols, they brought that food home and served it to their family and to their guests. So back then, it was temple to table. Today, it's farm to table, right? Know your food, know your farmer. Well, back then, it was like, which temple did this food come from? Because most likely, it came from a temple. And so understanding how to deal with food that was offered to an idol or idols was a big deal. It was hard to get away from it. It was everywhere. And so that is the context in which we will get into chapter 8 this morning. So our message for today is knowledge and love. So if you're taking notes, there are three points that I want to share with us this morning. The first point is knowledge leads us to love God and love one another. The second point is we have knowledge through Jesus Christ. And the third point that we'll cover this morning is choose love over knowledge with other Christians. We'll get back, get back to these points. And so with that, let us go to the Word and read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is the Word of the Lord. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul starts off saying, now concerning food offered to idols. So now that I have finished talking to you, writing to you about all these heavy topics that we covered earlier, now let's go to the next topic that you brought to me, which is food offered to idols. So really the question Paul is trying to answer is, is it lawful for us in God's eyes to eat and consume food that was offered to idols? Paul says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. In your Bibles, it probably has it in quotes, right? All of us possess knowledge. It's like back in those days, it was their version of Facebook, Instagram, memes, right? It's like bumper stickers. All of us possess knowledge. It was a popular saying. It was a slogan. So what does Paul do with that? He restates it. All of us possess this knowledge, yes, kind of tongue-in-cheek. Agree. Okay. But what is he agreeing with, and what exactly is this knowledge? Well, I think verse 4 tells us exactly what this knowledge is. Verse 4 says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. So despite being in this polytheistic society, many gods everywhere, ingrained in all parts of society, Paul says, yes, there is only one God. So you can imagine these brothers, maybe sisters, that brought this topic to Paul saying, yes, high five, finally, we knew Paul would agree with us, right? Well, yeah, Paul agreed. But Paul didn't just stop there. He didn't just say, you know this, you got this. Why are you even asking me? No. Paul continues in verse 1. He says, this quote-unquote knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Womp womp. We were so high right now. Yes, he agrees. And oof, okay, next sentence. Paul says, this knowledge you have puffs you up. It doesn't build others up. Love does. Paul is saying, your knowledge, guys, is causing some of you to misuse your knowledge in unloving ways. Misusing knowledge in unloving ways. You have the right head knowledge, but you're unloving. It's not good enough to know the facts if you don't love. These people's attitude was, hey, this is rational. There's only one God. We're Christians. Our weaker brothers, they don't get this. They better get on the boat. It's so obvious. We're right. Is this maybe us sometimes? We think we know something, and we're so proud that it causes us to not be loving to others. It causes us to sort of maybe look down at others, like, bless their heart. 
they don't get it, right? If you're from the South like me, you know what that means. If not, we can talk afterwards. Do we sometimes get puffed up like this? I'm sure I do. Maybe we act unlovingly because of something that puffs us up. Maybe this is us at work. Maybe this is us at home. Maybe this is us at Target as we're shopping. Maybe this is us at church. Maybe it's not knowledge that puffs us up. Maybe it's our wealth. Maybe it's our experience. Been there, done that. Maybe it's our status. Maybe it's the number of Facebook friends we have or number of real friends we have. It's education, maybe. You fill in the blank. But there's usually things that causes us to be puffed up. And when we do that, it's really difficult to love others. So Paul agrees, and he gets them with the right fist. So verse 2, he goes on, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So here's Paul lovingly taking them to school, okay? It's like, y'all, I'm going to take you to school in a loving way. He's shaking his head. Look, I'm not condemning what you know. I agree that there is only one God. But Paul is saying, hey, this knowledge, if you think you know something, guess what? Seek the Lord if you want knowledge. Knowledge without the fear of the Lord is pride. How do we know? Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This fear isn't like my irrational fear of snakes that some of you pick on me about. It's not the fear of man as you're preaching for the first time. No. This fear of the Lord is revering our holy God. It is saying, God, I am in awe of you. That is the fear of the Lord. So if you want knowledge, Paul is saying, don't behold yourself. Don't think about what you know. Rather, Paul is saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want knowledge, that's knowledge. Don't look within yourself and get all puffed up. So rather exalting God with knowledge, some of the people in Corinth, and maybe some of us, maybe myself, rather than exalting God, we get puffed up with pride. And brothers and sisters, this, this is an abuse of the gift that God gave us. It's an abuse of the gift of God to exalt ourselves. God gives us something, and we're going to take it and say, yeah, it's me. How dare we? Boasting about something that we had nothing to do with. Didn't do anything. God did. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by your own doing. It is a gift of God that no one 
may boast. It's a gift of God that no one may boast. And so Paul goes on in verse 3, says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Let's get this. Paul is telling the folks in Corinth and really telling us, Hey, stop being so consumed, y'all. Stop being so consumed with what you think you know. Rather, be consumed and be overwhelmed with who knows you. Paul's saying you're not loving toward others because you're so full of yourself. Be overwhelmed, not with what you know. Be overwhelmed with who knows you. And that's God Almighty. Galatians 4, 9 says this, but now that you have come to know God, rather, to be known by God. See, our knowledge of God wasn't because of some awesome pursuit where you walked a thousand miles and climbed all the mountains and found God because you did it. No, the Bible doesn't say that. It's a result of God's sovereign grace that opened our understanding. So Paul saying, hey, why? What are you boasting about? Why is your chest all puffed up? Friends, what are we boasting about? If we're not boasting in Christ, what are we boasting about? 1 John 4, 9, we love because he first loved us. When you look in the Bible from front to back, guess what it's about? It's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about us to say like, I believe in God and you don't, so you have some learning to do. I'm a better person. No, the Bible says we're all sinners. And it's he who sent his son to rescue us. It's what he did and not what we did. And in that same passage, it says, you know what? We are to also love one another. We love because he first loved us, and because of that, we are to love one another. Don't look around, but one another means all y'all, okay? One another means all our brothers and sisters in Christ, all right? That's what we're talking about. And yes, we love those that are not believers, but right now in this text, we're talking about our fellow brothers and sisters. All right, moving on to the second point. The second point, again, is we have knowledge through Jesus Christ. So let's read verses 5 through 6 in chapter 8. It says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, quote-unquote, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All right, I'm getting worked up. I need, to, I need to calm down. Paul again agrees. There's only one God, okay? One God. We agree. In this society where there's so many gods and you just look everywhere and there's statues. But you know what? They're not real. 
There's only one God. Anything that has an origin is not God. Anything that was created is not God. Anything that has a creator is not God. And he says, yet for us, us Christians, meaning those that have true knowledge, what do we know? Says this, one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist. Created by God. We were created by God and we exist because of God and we exist for God. So again, Superman, right? Pop the chest. Um, we were created by God and we exist because of God and we live for God, not ourselves. I'm not making this up. Paul is preaching to them. The Lord is preaching to us. Paul is lovingly saying here and correcting these brothers that brought this issue up is giving them perspective as they're being so proud. He's saying, hey, let us remind ourselves that we are creatures. God is the creator. I love reminders like this, because I don't know about you, but when I just go on with my day at work or whatever, everything starts to become more about me, what I need to do, what I want to do, what's not going well for me, and it affects my attitude. Sure, it's just me, but just bear with me. And so I like reminders like this passage. I also like doxology, right? Praise God and His sovereignty. We're going to sing that today. Do you know what it says? I'm not going to sing. <laughs> Praise God from whom all things flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Perspective. Praise Praise God. We are here to praise God, not ourselves. God created us, and we exist because of him and for him. See, our society, let me get in trouble here. Our society is wrong. It's not about living your best life now. It's not about you do you. It's not about believing in yourself not true because the Bible says God created us and we exist because of him and for him another reminder that I like is the Westminster Shorter Catechism it's a question and answer that's been used to help teach the scripture question number one is pretty short and simple what is the chief end of man in other words what is our purpose in life? The answer is pretty short. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Didn't hear anything in there about go do you. Nope. Living your best life. Nope. We are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever because God created us and we exist because of Him 
and for him. See, for me, I don't literally do this, but it's an example, okay? So work with me. It's like this. We know the story, mirror, mirror on the wall. But for me, it's like every morning, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the man? (laughs) You're laughing at me, but it's just me, I'm sure. But hey, isn't that our life? Mirror, mirror on the wall, tell me I'm the man. Again, the Bible says, nope. Praise God, praise God, praise God. I need this daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, correction and recalibration, right? By God's grace, through his word and with the help of the Holy Spirit, to constantly turn my attention back to who God is and to who I am. That's the right perspective. And that's the perspective that Paul is sharing with the brothers and sisters from Corinth. Our Father God created us for him, and we can only truly exist and live for God through Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about God who created us and how we live and exist for him. He goes another step further, talks about Jesus and how we can only truly exist and live for God through through Jesus Christ. Short part of a verse, but so important. In the New Testament, there aren't many references to Christians. You don't see a lot of Christians, Christians, Christians. No, there's like three. And two of those three are not terms of endearment. It's more like you Christians. But you know how Christians are referred to in the New Testament most of the time? In phrases like, in him. In Christ, through him, we are united in Christ, and he sustains us. It is through Jesus that we live for God. I love what John Owen said about union with Christ. He says, it's the cause of all other graces that we are made partakers of. They are all communicated to us by virtue of our union with Christ. Hence our adoption, our justification, our sanctification, our fruitfulness, our perseverance, our resurrection, our glory. He's saying we get to enjoy God's grace because of our union with Christ. That we are adopted as his children, that we are justified, that we're sanctified, that we are fruitful, we will persevere, and we will be resurrected and will be glorified with him one day because we are in Christ, not because we have something to boast in ourselves. So this is a second point. We have knowledge through Jesus Christ. So moving on to our third point, choose love over knowledge with other Christians. Choose love over knowledge. Let's read verses 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some 
through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. The sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul acknowledges in chapter 8 the question that the Corinthians brought up to him. Then he goes on to kindly preach to them, point them to the Lord, corrects them, and then says, okay, now let's get back the question that you brought up about food. See, I mentioned the society and the culture of Corinth, right? Gods everywhere, little g, idols everywhere. So guess what? As the gospel is being spread and shared, people are coming to the Lord. More than likely, they're coming to know Jesus Christ and becoming in him. But probably two days ago, two months ago, they were worshiping in these temples. They were bowing down to these idols. So it's still very fresh to some of them. They may have the head knowledge that Jesus, that God, there's only one, but they still may be struggling based on where they came from. They're still struggling because of their weak conscience with the same question, is it truly lawful in God's eyes to eat this meat that was offered in the temple? It is not a matter of an intellectual question that maybe was presented in the beginning of the chapter. It really could be a struggle for some based on their weak conscience. So why does conscience matter? Well, Romans 14, 23 says this, whoever have doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever is not proceeding from faith is sin. Paul wrote to the churches in Romans about the same topic. Guess what? Roman gods, Greek gods, similar cultures, they were all struggling with this, the issue of food offered to idols. Why does conscience matter? Conscience matter because it's the inner sense of right and wrong. The Bible just says, we just read it, that to violate our conscience, our inner sense of right and wrong, is sin. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying our conscience is 100% accurate. I'm not saying that our conscience is the North Star that we follow. It's not Jesus Christ is. However, if we do something against our conscience that we feel is wrong and we still do it, the Bible says it's sin. So Paul says, food doesn't bring us salvation. It's morally neutral. We're no better off if we eat it. 
Worse off, we're no better, worse off if we don't. But Paul says, but take care. See, there's more to this issue of food offered to idols than just knowledge. Paul says, don't cause your brother to stumble and sin for the sake of being right about something that's morally neutral. Don't cause your brother to stumble and sin for the sake of being right and boastful about something that's morally neutral. That's putting yourself ahead of someone else for something that's meaningless, like eating food that was offered to some statues. They're not gods. But if we cause someone to stumble, it is sin. So brothers and sisters, choose love over knowledge with other believers. Choose love over pride. We are to love one another. We are to build one another up in Christ. We're going to hear and we're going to read in the remaining chapters in 1 Corinthians. We're going to hear more about knowledge. We're going to hear more about food sacrificed to idols. We're going to hear and learn about spiritual gifts. But we know what it says, right? That beyond greatest of all of these is what? It's love. We could have so many gifts from the Lord, but the instrument in which we share these gifts with one another has to be through love. So let's move on to application this morning. There's two applications. The first one is pretty obvious. Love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're like me, sometimes it's easier said than done. Paul warns the Corinthians in chapter 1 in verses 22 and 23 about pride and arrogance. All of us. What does it say? It says, Jews demand signs, which are like power. Greeks seek wisdom, knowledge. Well, you can add Korean to that. That's probably me. Add all of you. Probably you. We all seek knowledge and wisdom, right? We have a saying these days. Knowledge is what? Power. Paul's warning us. Not just them in Corinth. Paul's warning us. But what does Paul say in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians? He goes on to say, but we preach Christ crucified. Don't boast in your knowledge. Don't boast in your power. Don't even seek it. Seek Jesus. Boast in Christ. Preach Christ. For us at Forest Park Church, may that be us for now and forevermore, that we continue to preach Jesus Christ and nothing else, because that is the gospel. That is the good news that we have in the Bible. We don't add to that. We don't take away from that. I'm going to get to that in a minute. It's hard to love others when you're so puffed up. Mirror, mirror on the wall. I'm the man. 
If I live like that, it's really hard to love you because you're not the man. Right? Bless your heart. Keep trying to be the man. But until you get to be like me, I'm probably going to just look down at you and I'm going to judge you. Say, oh, that's not love. It's hard to love when you're so full of yourself and have so much pride. It's easy to love others when you know who you are, when you're humbled by God's grace, when you know that what, what do you have to offer except Jesus? Outside of Jesus Christ, what did I do? What did we do? Nothing. Outside of Jesus Christ, what I know? What do we know? Nothing. We were created by God. We are sustained by God. Christians, all that we are and all that we will be are because of our union with Jesus Christ. Because we are in him, not because we have anything to boast about. As we love our brothers and sisters, if we truly love our brothers and sisters, we need to limit our Christian freedom when it butts up against wounding a weaker brother and sister's conscience. Christian freedom is good, but as brothers and sisters, when our Christian freedom butts up against another believer's weak conscience, then as Christians, because we are in Christ and because it's about Christ, our freedoms and our rights need to be pulled back. Not because we pity anybody, but because we are in Christ. We love God and we love our brothers and sisters. And it's because of that, we don't have to boast. Pull back those rights if it's going to cause my weaker brother or sister to go against their conscience as they're struggling, causing them to sin. And if we do that, we're sinning ourselves. Our last application point, run from legalism and licentiousness. Right now you're thinking, how does legalism and licentiousness come into play? Great question. We're going to go into that. See, we're to love our brothers and sisters that are weaker in their faith, where their conscience may be weaker. There's a but. But we are not to set the standard of the church, the law of the church, with the weak conscience, brothers and sisters in mind. What does that mean? I love what R.C. Sproul has to say about this. He calls this the tyranny of the weak. He says, we are to be sensitive, we are to be loving, and we are to be kind to those that have a weak conscience, but not let the weaker have tyranny over the church. Why? Well, this is how legalism gets a foothold in our churches. This is how legalism gets a foothold in our lives, right? So again, what does that mean? See, we end up with legalism adding to the definition of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We end up saying, hey, Jesus, what you did on the cross, I'm going to give you a 90%, but we need to sprinkle a little more seasoning 
to get you to 100%. That's what legalism does. It says, hmm, Christians, if you're a true believer, you would not eat the food offered to these idols. If you're a true Christian, you would not let a drop of alcohol touch your lips. If you're a true Christian in legalism, ladies, men, you would not show your ankles, right? Cover them up. If you show your ankles, you're not a Christian. Guys, as a believer in Jesus Christ, wear a coat and tie Sunday mornings, especially if you're going to preach. Do we know examples like this? How legalism, maybe starting off with our weak conscience, adds to, I love you, Jesus. I serve you, Jesus. And I better behave a certain way. That's the danger, brothers and sisters. Run from legalism. I love Paul's example of this in the Bible with Timothy. Paul's about to go on his missionary journey with Timothy. Timothy's mom was Jewish, and his dad was a Gentile, right? And so he wasn't circumcised. But Paul's like, hey, Timothy, um, you should get circumcised, bro. Why? Because they're about to go minister to other Jews. And it's better for Timothy, having a Jewish mom, to have been circumcised. Why? Because in Christ we love God, and in Christ we love others, and so that we can be all things to all people, as Paul says, that he might save some. So out of love, Timothy, go get circumcised. However, we read later, when Paul's talking to the Judaizers, Judaizers are like, hey, hey, all y'all that you think are Christians, you best be circumcised. Otherwise, you're not a follower of Christ. What does Paul say? (laughs) Paul's like, no way. No way. Why? Because physical circumcision is meaningless. Hey, we are justified by grace through faith. Our hearts are circumcised and cleansed. That's what matters, brothers and sisters, not physical circumcision. So what did he do there? Timothy gets circumcised because we love God and we love others. And for the sake of others that have my weak conscience that might have a hard time relating to you because you're a Jew, half Jew, but you're not circumcised, get circumcised for Christ's sake, for his sake. But at the same time, no. No way will we define what being in Christ means by getting circumcised. And that's the difference. Not only run from legalism, run from licentiousness, even licentiousness in the Christian setting, if that's possible, not sure. But this is what it sounds like. Hey, hey guys, you said the sinner's prayer, you're saved, now go sin. Go have some fun. Go eat that meat. You're saved, right? Go sin. Go cause others to sin. Have fun. Why? Because God's got you. You're saved. 
I would question with the person is truly in Christ, but there's a saying, carnal Christians, there's a saying because there are people that probably live like that, and what I'm submitting to you is, no, no. What does the Bible say? If we are truly saved, then we live for God. See, legalism adds to the work of Christ. Licentiousness takes away from the work of Christ on the cross. It takes away from the gospel. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. That's the Christian life, right? I promise you, when you go home today, if you look at all the epistles in the New Testament, read the first chapter, probably within the first seven verses, you will hear and read words like, you are saved, you are a Christian, you are chosen by God. Be confirmed in that. Praise the Lord that your rewards are in heaven and it's unfadeable. That's what it'll say. And the rest of the books or chapters in these books, it's about now that you are saved and justified. Here's how you should live. I promise you, go look it up. Tells us as a believer, here's how you should live for Christ. Be dead to sin. Here's how you should live when you are suffering. Here's what it means to love others. Here's what it means to be holy and righteousness in God. So we are saved, and because of that, we walk the life as ones that are holy because of Jesus Christ. We don't abandon all of that because we think we are saved. Our fruit comes from the fact, right, that God has saved us. So what's ironic is legalism and licentiousness, they both lead to what? They both lead to self. One says it's about my rules. Other says it's about my righteousness and my rights and my freedom. And guess what? We all know that's wrong because God created us. We exist for him and we live through Jesus Christ. So let's wrap up here. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be sure of this. We are known and loved by God in Christ. We have the knowledge of God in Christ. We have nothing to boast because we are in Christ. We are to love others because we are in Christ. We can limit our Christian freedom for our brother's sake because we are in Christ. Another way to say this, in Christ means that while we were still sinners, God sent his son, who is truly God, to become truly man, to live the perfect life that we could not live, to suffer and die on the cross, which was meant for us. He paid for our sins, paid the penalty for us. And not only did he do that on the cross, he gave us his perfect righteousness, paid for our penalty, and gave us his righteousness so that we could be saved, that we could be reconciled to our God who created us. So friends, are you in Christ? 
If you are, praise God, right? Praise God that you are in Christ. And I urge you, as a brother and sister in Christ, to flee from pride. Hold on to Christ, knowing that he is holding on to you. I urge all of us to be strengthened by the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live for him. Now, if you're not in Christ, maybe the Lord is stirring in your heart to surrender your life to him. I want to share this with you if you're not in Christ. In Christ, you have true freedom. In Christ, you have true forgiveness of sins. In Christ, you have eternal hope. In Christ, you can have everlasting life with God. This world, this world and our bodies that are broken, it's going to all go away and fade away. It's hopeless. But you know what? Jesus promised that he will return for us, that he will make all things new. I urge you, if you don't know Christ, to trust in him. If you don't know how, talk to us. We would love to walk with you. Let us pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for creating us. Lord, we know that you didn't need us and you don't need us. And yet it pleased you to not only create us, that even after we rebelled, that it pleased you to save us through your Son, Jesus. Lord, help us, Father, not to live like we did anything. Help us, Father, to have the right perspective as Christians that we are the created and you are the creator, God, that we exist to worship you and to praise you, to glorify you and not ourselves. Lord, through that, knowing who we are in you and loving you, help us, Father, to look at our brothers and sisters regardless of what they look like, what their circumstances are, help us to love them because of your son. We pray in Jesus' name.